You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum wa in the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. And welcome to the Drive Time Show, where we begin reflecting on the year that was 2022. And what a year it was. So in today's show, we will look back at the month of January on the Drive Time Show. If you would like to um, listen to our previous shows, you can always go to voiceofislam.co.uk or you can also look at the Twitter account, which is at Voice of Islam UK. And we, can, we are also um, active in all sort of um, uh, uh, social media so you can uh, you know find us in instagram tiktok etc etc this um episode for today it will be um a reflection of january 2022 so we are, are going through the um the whole year and uh, the year 2022 has nearly come to an end and uh, we started the year off with a show on the New Year's and what significance it holds to people around the world. Uh, the world witnessed a cigarette ban in New uh, New, New Zealand um, in a bid to build a smoke-free future generation, whilst Afghanistan was at the brink of a humanitarian crisis and near to collapsing when the Taliban took over. Also, Priti Patel's borders bill caused controversy. It was very. It was being called the anti-refugee bill, which aimed to punish many people fleeing from war and persecution from trying to seek safety in the UK. The pandemic's effect on property highlighted the economic catastrophe it brought, which forced about seven hundred thousand people in the United Kingdom into poverty. There are 120,000 youngsters in this group. COVID-19 still made headlines in the news. 136 million doses of vaccine have been rolled out in the UK. But does that mean that end of the COVID-19 pandemic has already, uh, you know, it, it has already finished? So we will be looking at um, all uh, various topics, of course, and we also spoke to experts on these topics. The first um, audio that we will be listening today will be with Imam Raja Burhan Ahmed, um, who spoke on the New Year, uh, bring about, uh, did it really, you know, change? So, um, uh, you know, about, about specifically about New Year. So um, let's um, listen to our first clip, which was a interview with Imam Raja Burhan. Yeah, we're talking about uh, uh, Imam Raja Burhan about new starts. Yeah, and actually, you know, this new year, um, you know, creating a significant change in one's self. Uh, so His Holiness Mirza Masrur Ahmed, may Allah strengthen his hand, has spoken about you know this self evaluation and reformation actually for a long time and in very uh, great detail. Now, you know, could you, for our listeners, explain some of his guidelines, you know, some pointers that uh, His Holiness has given us? You know, uh, being an Ahmadi Muslim and being an Imam for Ahmadiyya Muslim community, one of our responsibility is to teach the community about Islamic teachings. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, I must mention this thing, being a follower of Khilafat Ahmadiyya, you know, Hazur Anwar Ayyadahullah Ta'ala bin Aziz, he always makes our task the most easiest one. Mm-hmm. You are asking me about the pointer, what to do in the next year or any year. Hazur Anwar has, in black and white, told us in his Friday sermon, which he delivered on 30th of December 2016. You know, I was going through those points and I figured out that there are different categories we can divide those points in. Mm-hmm. For example, there are certain points which are related to the rights of the Creator, rights of God Almighty. Then there are certain points which are related to the rights of an individual being. For example, my rights to my own self. And then there are certain points which are related to the rights with the fellow beings, I mean the the people who are living with me, around me, for example, my family, parents, my wife, my children, my friends, I'm a teacher, my students, the society in which I'm living. And then on another level, there are certain rights which are related to the community on local level, national level, and international level. And of course, because I am a follower of Islam, there are certain responsibilities which I have uh, related to the teachings of Islam. So His Holiness talked about all these things. Just a few, few examples, one or two examples. For example, he mentioned this thing, that we need to assess ourselves and we need to ask this question, did we fulfill our promise of, of abstaining from shirk? That means not associating partners with Allah. You know, all these bullet points, in themselves, uh, we can write a book on all these bullet points, but they are they are just a reminder for all of us. Then another point he mentioned that, did we keep ourselves away from such gatherings which can lead to bad thoughts, bad habits? And I'm leaving certain points and I'm moving to another point in which this question was asked. Did we try not to inflict any pain on our own kin and other people. You know, such a wonderful point mm-hmm. that this is not only our responsibility to protect ourselves, rather this is our responsibility to protect the society around us. And I think it is worth mentioning um, as a reminder, uh, if listeners could spare some time and they can go and watch this 30th December 2016 Friday sermon, it will be a great benefit for all of us. Imam Raja, I mean, these, I mean, just just on these points that you've mentioned. I mean, of course, as as Ahmadi Muslims, we 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 listen, we adhere, and we we deeply um, respect, and of course, honor the words of our caliph and try to implement them in our lives. But for for people who aren't Muslims, um, and for people who still want to try and improve themselves, try and become better human beings obviously with the pandemic there's there's so many problems in in everyone's life not just as a muslim but if you look at it from living a, a normal citizen in the uk you have you've got the pandemic you've got brexit you've got uh, unemployment cases on the rise there's so many issues that are that are happening what can a person do to try and have, are, have some sort of support i think you are just limiting yourself there are many more problems as well For of course example, of course and uh, um, we've only got two hours <laughs> so many other problems but you know uh, you know answer of all these things is in the islamic teaching and you know because we are talking about 
new year what can we do how can we improve our life and it's a continuous struggle again i will be mentioning a verse from the holy quran but you know it is it is a statement and anybody who will find some some benefit from a statement whether it's a quranic or non quranic he can benefit from there i would like to mention one very important point which is mentioned the holy quran and that is allah almighty says in chapter number 51 and verse number 56 the arabic is wazakir fa'inna zikratan fa'ul mu'minin the translation is and keep on exhorting for verily exhortation benefit those who would believe now it is not important to believe in islam but it is important to believe in creator it is important to believe in system what what i am trying to elaborate or explain from this verse of the holy quran is you know all these problems which any individual or a society is facing the basic thing is we are in a way or in another we are not doing our, our responsibility we are not fulfilling the rights of of maybe the government or the fellow beings or the creator so it's a mix and match of everything so i think we need to turn back to the basics and we need to first of all uh, try to become such a kind of personality uh, which should be giving benefit to everybody around us you know it's 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 a very simple and basic point but this is a very useful point mm-hmm. for example controlling budget of a house we need to control ourselves and once we are ready to control ourselves that then we can control other things which are around us any kind of difficulties financial crisis and things which are related to this i think i must mention this thing if you are working hard if you are working honestly you may face difficulties for a limited time but at the end of the day you will be successful followers of religion and even non followers of religions they have the same result because this is how allah almighty has created this world Mm, very well said. Uh, yeah, I totally agree with those points, uh, Imam Rajabhan. How though, you know, because like my co-host was like saying, he has a number of gym memberships. Of not, which, not anymore. Oh, okay, <laughs> not, <laughs> not anymore. anymore. So you know, yeah, we we do we. I think uh, you know a lot of us fall into that trap of wanting to better ourselves. But you know, how can we you know keep motivated throughout the year? uh you know and constantly look towards you know that 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 reaching that goal right and uh, and you know your your point you know uh when you quoted that verse from the uh, holy quran about exaltation and it's actually in the uh practice of exaltation that 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 is you know where you get the benefit so it's is you know it's a bit like saying it's not a destination but it's actually the journey which will give you the benefit. So, you know, how can we keep that journey going? You know, keep that like we would say in 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 uh, Islam, that imam, uh, that iman, that faith, that 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 candlelight within ourselves lit and shine brightly throughout the year as opposed to just shining brightly for a month and then getting a bit kind of frazzled. Yes, yes. You know, um, uh, as far as Islamic teachings are concerned, uh, You know Allah Almighty totally understands the nature of human beings because we are his creation. Mm-hmm. And you know um, uh, when we are talking about namaz we say in the Holy Quran 
That means, I mean, the simple translation is that something is falling and we are trying to make it stand again and again, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, practically, namaz cannot fall, but what we are doing on daily basis that sometimes we are just being lazy, we are forgetting and we are delaying the matter. In the same way, in our everyday life or in our life throughout the year, we 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 try to plan something, we try to do that thing, then we forget that thing. And that is why, you know, there are many kind of, what should I say, reminders throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the year. Especially for Muslims, the month of Ramadan, which inshallah this year it will come somewhere in April, mm-hmm. that will be another kind of reminder for all of us. That okay, we we were shown we were showing little bit weaknesses in our spirituality, in our morality, and things like that. So let's let's I mean prepare yourself and start from the from the beginning and and try to do much better this time. Okay, what I am trying to say here is again referring to that verse of the Holy Quran, chapter number fifty one, verse number fifty six. That five daily prayers, Friday prayer uh, after a week. Uh, after uh, yes, after a week, and then month of Ramadan, then some other uh, our gatherings and uh, uh, other kind of activities, Jalsa, Salana, Hajj, and this and that. These are a kind of reminders for us to keep ourselves motivated. And another very important thing is, you know, these what should I say? I mean, guidelines are there, but you know, we need to have somebody who who should keep reminding us. And that is why we have the blessings of Khilafat. I understand those who do not follow Khilafat, they, they are not in need to follow the Khalifa Waqt. But what I am re- recommending here is the words of a person who is reminding us about certain things, they will definitely strike us. You know, our teachers, mm-hmm. when they are telling us certain things in our classroom, we do get motivated. When our bosses, they are telling us different things, we do get motivated. In the same way, the world leaders and for us, Khalifatul Masih, whenever he reminds us about anything, I think, I'm sure about this thing, almost all of Ahmadiyya Muslim community, they did offer tahajjud prayer on the first day of this year because this was reminded by Khalifatul Masih. Again, these are the motivational things. Text is there. Practical example is there. We need to turn our faces towards these motivational speeches examples and then by the grace of Allah everything will be all right Allah knows our nature we are going to fall again and again and we need to stand up again and again mm. so um, in you know in that uh, or given that uh, yeah what is the best way you know for us to help others actually reach their targets and you know sometimes you know uh, it may, you know, if if you make, uh, if you point out, like you were like saying, you know, to to help them, to guide them. Um, if you're the recipient of that, maybe that might feel judgmental, right? Absolutely. So, right. so, so, how can we, as being, you know, brothers in arms, let's say, yeah, help them along uh, and give them the right kind of guidance and the right kind of pointers? You know, one simple sentence answer is this. Do not tell anybody to do, rather do yourself, people will start following you. And mm-hmm. I think this, this this is a very practical example. And I think 
I'm a father of three kids. And most of our listeners, they must be parents. Uh, to teach our kids, the best thing is we must start doing that thing. For example, if we would like our children to study, we should be sparing some time in our home studying certain book or anything, any useful thing. And our children will copy us. For example, if we want our children to be regular in prayers, first of all, we need to start um, offering prayers regularly in front of them. For example, if we would like our children to recite Holy Quran at home, we need to start this thing ourselves. So the best way to teach others is, first of all, we should be setting our own example in the right way. Then people will follow us. If I'm going to the mosque, I can simply ask one of my friends, I'm going to mosque, would you like me to take you there? Yes, no, doesn't matter, but that will be a ringing bell kind of thing for him. Mm -hmm. Okay, my friend is going, why not I should go with him? Mm -hmm. So, answer is simple, but practical. We need to show our own example, the right example, and inshallah, our brothers, our sisters, our children will follow. This is what Khalifa al-Masih, Ayyadahullah Ta'ala bin Aziz, is doing the indict. Imam Raja, I mean, we're, we're very fortunate as, as Muslims, particularly as Ahmadi Muslims, we've accepted the, the prophecies of the Holy Prophet, we accepted the Messiah which he prophesied to come, we've accepted the, the Caliphs. Um, but for the, the, for the average Joe outside who needs a, needs that guidance needs that reminder that there is a creator that there is a god and that we should turn to him in all in all circumstances of our life how can an individual like that what what needs to happen in someone's life or what can how can we really bring them to god to that rope of god almighty you know it will it will differ from person to person i mean i always give this example in today's world even um, a child who has just started going to school, the first thing he learns from school is whenever he's in any kind of difficulty, he doesn't know the meaning of a word, he will, he or she will try to go and Google the meaning of the word. Okay, what is the Google thing? The Google thing is he needs a guide from where he can have the right answer. What I'm trying to say is this is human nature. We need a guide. Whether we are following a leader or not, we still need somebody to guide us. And if we are feeling difficulty regarding that, and I think anybody who's feeling any kind of difficulty, the best thing is there is there is an, an inner self in everybody. And that inner self always guides us to right path. I must tell you one thing. If somebody is doing something wrong, it always strikes from inside that, I am doing something wrong. I should not be doing this. But somehow, if he does that thing wrong, he, he still feels guilty. So what I'm trying to do, and, and I'm trying to elaborate here is, every individual has a responsibility. There is a purpose of this life. And the purpose of this life, according to us, to understand our creator and being a very useful human being for our fellow beings. Everybody needs to judge on, on his personal level the time will come, some bell will ring, and that will differ from person to person. And I hope and I pray this new year will bring peace, harmony, and ease in the life of everybody who is living in this world. Beautiful message at the end of this interview from Imam Raja Burhan, who spoke about New Year, bring 
bringing about a real change. And we hope that this new, the coming year also brings peace and harmony for us. Uh, moving on um, to the next um, show we had here was in regards to grief and coping with loss. We spoke about the Islamic, the Islamic teachings about death, how religion can uh, help with coping with grief and loss, etc., etc. In this regard, we spoke to uh, Kausuma Ali, and here is what um, they had to say. So, you know, we're talking about death and grief uh, and, you know, just all aspects of grief and how to deal with grief. Yeah. So, you know, we all know and have felt that, yeah, it's not easy to lose someone that you love. Uh, so how can faith and having a faith help in overcoming the pain of such a loss? I think in the context of Islam, for example, you know, I'm Muslim. I think that knowing that we're just passing through in the dunya and that we are tested and we have these trials and tribulations and losses that it is temporary it's not permanent because there's an afterlife so i think if you're very in touch with your faith and you believe that actually you're going to transition into the next life and be reunited with your loved ones eventually um faith can really definitely help process the grief that you're experiencing, the despair. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would add that there is a, a caveat to that. I don't think that it can work on its own. It's obviously a large part of the puzzle. In fact, several pieces. But in this day, this era that we live in, um, particularly with mental health and social media and all of that, I think that it's a, a little bit harder to just rely on faith 100%. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it helps to have sobor and to use all the tools and the gifts that we were given. Um, but I, I just don't think it can work on its own. Um, and having someone to speak to in the physical sense, whether it's a, a therapist or a trusted member of your family, or to express it perhaps through another outlet like, I don't know, painting or journaling, that can definitely help you manage your loss I, I don't know if we overcome it I personally think you take your grief and your pain to the grave with you mm-hmm. uh, that's just my personal perspective from interviewing hundreds of people over the past two and a half years um, because we have you know I have heard that people fall in and out of their faith all the time when they're tested and go through difficult periods in their life and depending on the circumstances in which someone died the narrative isn't the same for everyone. So mm. if you experience death through injustice or systemic failure, then that's going to be a little bit harder to deal with because there'll be lots of unanswered questions. And sure, I can cry to Allah. Everyone always says, you know, talk to Allah about your troubles. Vent to Allah, don't vent to the world. But I do think you do need to vent to somebody mm-hmm. and talk to somebody in the physical sense, a trusted person, so you can 100% be vulnerable and not be judged for what you're about to say because some of us do fall out of our faith. But yeah, 100%, I, you know, for me, when my dad died in January 2020, um, faith was a huge part of it and speaking to solid people really helped. Mm-hmm. So I was actually uh, thinking as you're uh, you know, speaking there, you know, there's some kind of like really old hashed up phrases that uh, when... You know, you know someone's grieving. Someone's ha- had the loss of uh, a dear one. 
Um, and it came to me as well, actually, that uh, you, you hear the phrase that, oh, don't, you know, have patience, you know, time will heal or time mm. will lessen the effect. And I know kind of like trying to cast my mind back to my own emotions, yeah, that uh, at the time when I heard those words, I thought, you know, really, uh, almost like an out-of-body experience, yeah, like, you know, you know, as if it would really heal. You know, you feel the, the, the you know, that, that pain. It's almost like a physical pain, right? Um, but now, I suppose, upon reflection, yes, you know what, time, uh, like you were saying, you don't forget it. Um, but I suppose, you know, that wound uh, was an open wound when it first happened, but now has healed somewhat. Uh, but that the mark of that wound is still there on your body, yeah. whether it be in your heart. So, you know, Nowadays, you know, in society, do you think that, you know, grieving is still viewed as, you know, a weakness, you know, uh, or has it become, you know, a, a norm now uh, to pretend to be strong and move on with your life instead of having to grieve and remember? What do you think is 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 the is the response nowadays? It's, it's a really big topic and the only way to really answer it from my experiences and what I've heard is that we live in a society now that we're not really robust when it comes to mental health and being vulnerable and talking about difficult experiences everything's very much like positive vibes now show mm -hmm. real high of the good things and there are all these generic throwaway terms like oh have sobot and sobot is saying me wrong when it's woven into your daily habit yes but I almost feel like it's just a line that's banded about now. Upkeep mm. your practices and be done with it. And yeah, I I just don't think that we're literate when it comes to talking about death because it's it's a massively taboo topic. I think people think if we talk about it or we acknowledge it too much, that it is sad when actually it's the most natural thing in life and we need to prepare for it. In, in the sense that, for example, when you're looking for life insurance, or critical illness, or writing a will. Um, you know, mm -hmm. we are thinking about it in lots of different ways, but it's still very much a taboo because it's not the said, it's not the said thing mm -hmm. to talk about. Really. Yeah, it's not yeah. exactly the topic. Um, I mean, I like about some of the dinner invitations that I don't get because they know I'll start talking about. This is <laughs> 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 one of those things. I mean, something that um, we see that mostly with children as well, that we don't speak too often to children about death as well. And um, do you think that children are thus less likely to accept a loss and are more likely unable to deal with grief? Uh, I don't agree with that because I have... Um... I've supported a lot of children in the past two and a half years and families. Uh, I, I think children do accept it, but acceptance is something that happens over time. And again, it will depend on the circumstances of which that person died or the relationship that that child had with that person. Uh, if you give a child the right tools and resources, so for example, explaining the permanence of death, not using euphemisms, showing them love, answering their questions, acknowledging them yes they will be able to deal with the bereavement um 
they will eventually come to an acceptance. But do we ever really accept accept it? I guess it depends on the of the bereavement because some hmm. people can't accept that someone's died. But for children, I think that they do if the caregivers be there to do what they're meant to be doing, which is showing right. love to the child and explaining death. Because I've heard many a story where children are told that, oh, you know, and they're like, where's grandma? I'm not having dinner with grandma on a Sunday. You know, I want to see my nanny. Um, we use euphemisms like, oh, grandma's sleeping with the stars. She's, hmm. you know, she's with right. the angels. And children think literally. So they're like, okay, well, I can, you know, book a flight to the stars. I can, I'll just go to sleep and I'll see nothing. And as soon as you don't, as soon as you stop using plain language, that's when it gets confusing for children. Using plain mm. language, like the body stop working. If you have a faith, like in Islam, we know what our purpose is, right? You know why we're here, we believe in the afterlife. If we explain things in plain English, children will get it. But I think for the time, parents... Right. They, they, they just need the tools and the resources. And there are charities out there that can help you with that, to help it. Hmm. But I do, I, I think children do accept it eventually given the right tools and resources in the environment. Right. Um, you, you have mentioned that we should talk more about it, uh, you know, as a society. But uh, how much should we actually talk about it? When, when do you think, you know, there, there's a fine line when... You know, we have to be careful that we don't cross it. And as you mentioned that, you know, you uh, you are not invited to dinner parties anymore because the people know that you're going to talk <laughs> about death. So I know you were joking, but, uh, you know, there is, there must be, um, you know, some, some sort of measure that, you know, we, we have to talk about death because it's something certain, it's inevitable, and uh, we should be open about it. But, um, you know, should we be, embracing it since since it's inevitable after all so how much should we talk about it what should we uh, discuss with our fellows um and and especially with with children mm. i'm a little bit baffled to be honest uh because as a muslim right we know that we're born to die um i can't speak for other faiths so like for me death is You know, I've known about the permanence of death since I was a kid. So it's always been quite normalized. Uh, I just think it's about using age-appropriate language to explain things. There are lots of books out there, particularly for children, to explain like Jannah and, you know, the purpose of our being on this earth and death and how to process feelings. It's just, I think, because we live in Western civilization and influences, it's It's just a taboo topic and I, you know, as long as you talk about it in a comfortable, safe environment, mm -hmm. I, I think that it's fine. It's about carving out and finding the right environment to speak in and finding the right people because unfortunately in the society we live in now, it's not something that, I, you know, you can talk to anybody about. It's not like I could just log on and talk to my colleagues about it straight away. I've, you know, I've spent the last two and a half years finding people to talk to to talk with about death and dying and different faiths and belief systems and injustices and I and I think you have to kind of like you have to do your homework almost mm. a little bit. I mean it's yeah, I mean, Kalsuma, it's, it's a bit of a weird subject, uh, like I've said. It touches just, us all, 
but it's it's something it's it's a bit like uh, the white elephant you know in the in the in the room it's there but you don't want to talk about it but you really should talk about it so yeah. i i totally agree you know just having that um i suppose the wherewithal to know when to approach the subject and how to approach a subject but given that you know i mean what's your advice on you know trying to help someone with their loss and you know helping them to actually get you know get on with that process of grieving yeah so i mean i'm i don't like to give advice or tips because i'm a big believer in walking in your journey mm -hmm. to speak to speak your answers which is what i did um after my dad died and it's a continuous journey for me but of course there are lots of different resources and, and services available out there if you're someone where you feel that you want to talk to somebody but you can't talk to your family or friends you want to speak to someone impartial there's always therapy um so for example i don't know you can you know as me for example i, I went to therapy it didn't work out but that's just because i didn't have the right therapist mm -hmm. you can find the right therapist for you uh, there are lots of groups out there that you could go to like there are, you know groups for parents where a child has died there are lots of different charities and grassroots initiatives if you want to reach out and speak to people and connect with others and hear their stories uh on the other hand there are podcasts like i did my podcast bereavement room and a lot of people like listening to podcasts because it gives them a perspective on you know people's experiences and what they've gone through and how they've dealt with it there there are lots of different avenues for you mm -hmm. but what i would say is that you know your grief better than anyone mm -hmm. because you live in it and it's so personal to you you know what's going to work for you some people won't want to go to therapy instead they'd rather go to the gym or mm -hmm. um, find other avenues to, to to kind of cope i suppose yeah, it's a, it's a management tool, mm -hmm. but I think that if we're not talking about it, you're suppressing it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. although therapy didn't work out for me, I journal, so I express it through journaling. Or for others, they just you know they will talk to Allah when they're praying. Mm -hmm. um, if you if you're not talking about it, you're not addressing it. It goes mm -hmm. unaddressed. Yeah, and, and that can play out, and it could play out at the worst moment. And mm -hmm. um, it's just whenever you're ready, you can seek support and. Yeah, you mm -hmm. know your grief better than anyone, but I, I don't really want to run off a checklist here. Mm. No, I, 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 yeah, I agree with you, but I think yeah. I suppose you know we take from that is that uh, you know to know yourself and to know you know how you're feeling, and then just not to mm -hmm. not to kind of like I suppose uh, compartmentalize that and just you know put it away, uh, but to actually just deal with it. You were listening to uh, the interview with Kalsoma uh, Ali. Um, about grief and coping with loss. We also uh, discussed about uh, Afghanistan, uh, which is on the brink of a humanitarian crisis. And um, this interview we had with Dr. Marvin Weinbaum. Let's listen to this interview. As the Taliban um, in, are in power without much public support, can you tell us about this new Afghan government is it workable are you one of those who thought when they took over maybe things even if it's one or two percent maybe things are slightly different or or, or or have changed this time around it's been impossible for them to have a modern economy uh, or anything like it uh, i think that they would like to be able to uh, 
selectively keep as much of what was working in the previous regime. Uh, but the fact is that, uh, as has been indicated here, they don't have the finances for it. Hmm. But just as importantly, they don't have the skills that are going to be necessary to keep that kind of government going. Uh, so I think it comes down in some ways to what kind of government are they willing to sati- be satisfied with. Hmm. We, we like to think that, well, you know, you have to have this kind of government to go on. They may very well, as they did in the 90s, be willing to rule without governing, in effect. Uh, and as long as they can stay in power, and I think staying in power is their, is their number one priority, uh, they may very well be willing to satisfy for a level of uh, state control that is really quite minimal. Um, and it may be not because this is what they wanted, but this is about the best that they can have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really interesting you talk about that. Is, is this related to the country still being very much led by tribes, you know, like a tribal region within itself who deal with issues themselves? Well, I think that what we are talking about here is the fact that to manage the workings of a uh, of a modern state requires a the kind of expertise that uh, was available to to some extent uh, under the republic. Uh, uh, now, for reasons that we all know, having to do with corruption and uh, and everything that went with it. Uh, and, and also the way in which the foreign benefactors went about uh, spreading their largesse certainly uh, did not contribute to uh, a, uh, a government free of, of uh, corruption. Mm. But we're talking about skills here now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and these skills are just not available. What's happened is the bureaucracy has really uh, virtually uh, come you know, come apart. They have fired, they have fired large numbers of people mm. uh, from the bureaucracy. They, just the very fact that they are making it very difficult for women to uh, to be able to uh, participate in the economy, uh, given the fact that they can't get to where they uh, would their places of, of employment without having a man accompany them? Uh, and then can they work in the same offices as men? Well, probably not. Mm. So, and we're talking about women who make up probably 40% of the uh, of the civil servants. Yep. And so what we're, what we're faced with here is just that the, the kind of wherewithal that you need to have a, a government that's functions uh, on on a large scale here a large span of, of government functions it's just not it's just not possible yeah. uh, I actually I should also mention they have fired many of the people the, the lawyers that have been fired for example uh, and then of course we could talk about the health workers here and the fact that many professionals have simply fled I mean 
that that's a key reflection on on the skills isn't it i mean how can you replace the skills knowledge base and civil servants is what keep things yeah. uh rolling on and this qu- next question i kind of had for you leads into that conversation and would you say that this again is one of the challenges that the afghan government is facing right now in terms even for its foreign relations as well well it would love to have political recognition uh, and we'd like very much to have the kind of support, financial support, uh, development assistance uh, that uh, the previous government was able to attract. Uh, But the fact is that they've demonstrated repeatedly that they're not willing to give up anything to give it. Uh, Look at the amount of international Mm. pressure that was put on them to create a more inclusive government uh, and to soften its policies toward uh, uh, social policies. Uh, They completely ignored this, but at the same time, virtually every country has established some kind of relationship with this government. Even though they've failed to reopen their their embassies, and, and that will probably change pretty quickly, as some will do that, every country has in effect given it already a a high degree of legitimacy just by the fact that it becomes necessary for them, they feel it necessary, to engage this government. Uh, so the the challenges that they have here are, 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 are obviously here. They would love to have foreign support. And again, I repeat, they're not prepared to really yield anything in terms of their own uh, policies, particularly yeah. social policies, to get that kind of support. Dr. Weinbaum, apart from that, um, we've, we've seen that in after their takeover, after we've had the evacuations from Afghanistan, the funds and the assets that the Afghanis had or the, the, the government had were frozen and they were not recognized as a government by the US. So what what is it that the world is trying to achieve? Are there any insecurities that those funds, if available to them, will be subject to corruption, that it will start again where we were in the 90s or even before that, where <clears throat> you have these ideologies developing against the West and then everything starts from fresh? Well, the United States, but also the international community in general, was hoping to use recognition here as lever here to get them to, you know, as I say, uh, to more inclusiveness hmm. and to softening some of their policies, and that this has not has not worked. And as far as the United States is concerned, it would be politically very difficult at this point to simply renew the kind of programs or anything like that that existed earlier. Uh, this is just not going to happen. Now, with respect to the 9.5 billion or so that are being withheld uh, by the uh, U.S. Treasury, uh, most of it by the U.S. Treasury, uh, this this will, I think, be a made, made available ultimately for humanitarian yeah. purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, of course, it will be too late uh, and not sufficient in any event uh, for what the what the challenge is. But uh, 
there is a real concern here that if they simply pass this money through the hands of the Kabul government, that inevitably this will only strengthen them to do the very things that uh, the United States and other countries wish that they would not do. So it's, it's just not going to happen. Of course, as you point out, uh, corruption is inevitable. So the trick here, Ben, to figure out a way of somehow channeling this money directly to NGOs, to international relief organizations, that will then be able to directly uh, provide that needed assistance, the relief that's needed. That's quite a challenge, though. Uh, that's, they're up against a great deal uh, here because the infrastructure, uh, given the, the extent here of the need here, it is just so great and growing, as has been pointed out, growing very rapidly. Hmm. And if you don't mind me asking, what is it that the U.S. and the international community doesn't want them to do with that money if they have well, access to it? Yeah, you know, the, it, it is, there are certain uh, um, buzzwords here, hmm. uh, which, uh, and one here is particularly, or, or I need more than words, but, but a, an understanding here that uh, you can't, have here a government which is going to be acceptable that returns to the kinds of gender policies that that the Taliban uh, are now pursuing and certainly did in the 1990s. Uh, this is going to be very difficult for many countries to to be able to accept, particularly Europe and the United States, mm. where these have become very important domestic issues. Uh, and uh, and the uh, the reports that we've been receiving here about about retribution against various government security officials and and those who were anyway closely sided with the government that kind of of, uh, of extrajudicial kinds of behavior is also registering here in the United States and in Europe. Uh, so they clearly want to see evidence here uh, of the kind that would inevitably require that the Taliban back off on many of what they have considered to be religious doctrine. Hmm. And as we know, that's from everything we've seen, that's the red line that they draw up. Uh, Although, uh, let me say this, though, mm. which is very interesting. As much as they are pretty demanding as far as their domestic policies are concerned, the Taliban have shown greater flexibility in their international uh, behavior. And I, I refer particularly here to the fact that the Taliban are obviously interesting, interested in having China uh, make uh, renew its investments. Mm. In the country and to and to expand its its uh, its role, uh, and they are not opposed to having India as well uh, coming back in as a uh, in support of development programs, uh, despite the fact that both of those countries, in their behavior toward towards Muslims, uh, certainly one would expect that this would be 
this would make it prohibitive mm. yeah. for the Taliban to have close dealings with these countries, or at least to express a objection. And what about Pakistan? That no religionists are being treated. And what about Pakistan? Would that be on the top of the list before India and China? Uh, well, they, uh, they, they are. I don't think that the. They, it's not the question here uh, of uh, of repressing Muslims in, in Pakistan. Obviously, sure. they, they look. There can be no successful Afghanistan without Pakistan. Yeah, uh, very clear. Uh, uh, and so, uh, alienating uh, uh, Pakistan would mm. uh, would certainly not be in their interest. But at the same time, we have to remind ourselves, and most people really, I, here in the United States particularly, think that Pakistan is, is can, can get whatever it wants in this in this uh, Taliban-ruled Afghanistan. That mm. it, it has only it has only to, to ask and that the Taliban will will uh, comply. Well, the fact is that whether we look back at the 90s or right now, and by the way, there is fighting apparently going on at the in the border areas now on this fencing issue. The fact is that the Taliban have never bent over to uh, to listen to Pakistan when they felt that Pakistan was demanding of that of them things that they felt crossed the line as far as their own beliefs uh, are concerned. Hmm. So it's uh, the idea that somehow Afghanistan is going to be uh, a lackey to uh, uh, to uh, Pakistan, a puppet of Pakistan's. I don't think that there's any uh, that we should be we should be disabused of that idea. Hmm. Uh, will they have influence? Of course they will, because as I say, they're crucial to the particularly the economic future of Afghanistan. Tushuwaima, it's, it's it's interesting that you mentioned uh, you know this this religious aspect of Muslim countries. In this regard, I want to ask you because I'm thinking of you know all of these Muslim countries in that area. You have well, partially speaking, some of, some of those countries: Iran, Pakistan. Then you have the Middle East as well. You know the the Arab stations, uh, nations, Arab League in general. In, for example, I'm thinking of a verse in the Holy Quran or one of the the, the, the the rules that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, suggested that if there is one country who is not in line, I'm just paraphrasing here, uh, with what is right and what is wrong, if they are committing atrocities, if they are uh, committing uh, human atrocities, uh, you know, against against human human rights then it is the na- it's it's the job of other nations of other muslim nations to to play their role and to make sure that those atrocities are stopped are you seeing enough involvement from muslim countries so-called muslim countries well the the i think that the pakistanis can answer that very quickly because <laughs> uh, as much as the kashmir issue has been an issue in the protection of the Muslim population mm. uh, in, in that uh, former state of, of India, uh, now gone as a state. Uh, through all this time, uh, there's been remarkably little support that Pakistan has received on this issue. Mm. And above all, the strangest, of course, is, is Saudi Arabia, mm. which is, has been crucial to Pakistan's uh, economic well-being certainly bailing out Pakistan when it was in, in dire economic straits. But 
every one of these countries pretty much is doing business with India, uh, including this more nationalistic India. Uh, and uh, the only, you do get occasional, uh, uh, at least verbal support from Iran and Turkey. Uh, but the fact is that countries, be they Muslim countries or not, uh, essentially come down to what doing what's in their best national interest. Mm-hmm. And all of them have very well, as much as they, they may sympathize with, uh, with what is going on in Kashmir, uh, when it comes down to real politics, uh, they put their money where they think their interests lie. Hmm. Lastly there, Dr. Weinbaum, for the future, as far as the humanitarian crisis is concerned, I'm sure humanitarian aid is not enough. How do you think, how long will the UN and other NGOs be able to support the Afghan people, if they're even allowed to support, because I know there is a few restrictions on that end as well. So long-term speaking, in the next year, what, what would you think is something that you know, could be looked at to make sure that the people of Afghanistan, because in, in, in conflict areas and conflict situations, is always the, the common civilization, the common man who gets grinded uh, and who suffers the most. So how do we tackle that issue, leaving the political aspects a little bit to the side? Well, it's very interesting that all of the countries now, the regional, regional states as well as the international, more broadly the international community, uh, do not want to see the Taliban to fail as a government. Hmm. That would be worse than uh, than just about anything else at this point, because that would lead here to the kind of chaos, the kind of renewed civil war that would make it impossible to be able to deal with the humanitarian uh, challenges that we've been talking about. Uh, so uh, the international community really has a stake here in a certain degree of stability. Uh, even those countries that have to bite the bullet here, uh, uh, the poison pill of having to effectively, without wanting to encourage the Taliban or to do the wrong thing or, or, or to be able to uh, enable them in any way to carry out policies that these countries disagree with at the same time that they don't want them they don't want instability in in in, in Afghanistan hmm. this really would would really uh, make it as I say difficult to uh, uh, it, it would in addition to creating the difficulty here in being able to deliver humanitarian uh, 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 support uh, they would be faced with <coughs> excuse me the refugee surge that everybody is is fearing, uh, and although much of it has already occurred, if you look at refugees, particularly in Iran and Turkey at this point, uh, and that's just a fraction of what will will tr- empty out this country, as it did in in the 1990s, empty out this country, and they have to go somewhere, and so. The avoidance of this has been very important now to uh, most of the uh, countries in the in the region, uh, and I think therefore coming to your question here, uh, uh, 
there, there will be support. It won't be enough except, as I've suggested, to maintain a minimal state. Hmm. And, uh, and that, that kind of economy uh, is, is going to be, uh, uh, is going to be enough to keep maybe the Taliban elite uh, satisfied. But that's about it. Yeah, no. uh, that sounds like the worst scenario, the doesn't it? Say the country will, will be what it has long been, and that is one of the poorest in in the world. Yeah. Uh, and I just don't see any way out of that now. Vic, you can't rebuild an economy that was that was really uh, minimal to begin with in most respects, yeah. except for the for poppy growing. So. There really is no no base to build it on. There aren't the skills that would be necessary to even undertake that kind of uh, of, of uh, uh, task. And so, uh, the long term consequences here of what's been going on here are just so dismal that it, it's sad, particularly for people like myself who have had an association with Afghanistan and live there. Uh, and, and and researched it over the course of more than 50 years hmm. to see what is happening here. And let me just say, add one more thing. Whatever we say about the republic uh, that uh, that failed so many ways, flawed in so many ways, that it did bring it did bring about a degree of human capital that the country had never seen before. Educated people, hmm. uh, uh, mostly in the cities, to be sure. But millions of people who invested in this in this republic's success, uh, and really at this point, uh, that one can watch as these people have fled now, uh, and and many more will leave along with a larger number of people for economic reasons have left this country. So for a for for twenty years at least, the here at least was the were the ingredients here to build a modern state. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum wa peace be upon you, and welcome back to the Drive Time Show. In the previous hour, you were listening to some um, interviews that we have done um, with some experts on the topics um, of um, 
the new year, uh, how it brings at, uh, us a new and real change. We spoke about uh, the crisis in Afghanistan. We also spoke about the grief and coping with loss. In this hour, we will continue with uh, the um, Afghanistan issue um, where we spoke uh, with uh, Dr. Lisa Schuster as well. And we'll be listening to that as well. But, um, um, you know, about this specific topic, we also, you know, discussed about the Islamic teachings, um, how, what what the true teachings are of, of uh, you know, being human. And uh, what, because, you know, one of the issues that we had in Afghanistan was the um the mass salvation uh in Afghanistan and Islam uh you know what it says about hunger is that the holy quran it says that um um and they feed for love of him the poor the orphan and the prisoners saying we feed you for allah's pleasure only we desire neither reward nor thanks for you or, fro- or from you so allah will save them from the evil and that day and will grant them cheerfulness and happiness. Now, from this, um, you know, verse, we learn that Islam and the Holy Quran encourages us actually and, and lifts us up, um, you know, to feed the poor and the, and and the needy people. And it's a, a crucial and 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 a responsibility of every Muslim to help those uh, who are in need. Um, and it is our responsibility as well. And I think uh, we spoke about responsibility of the government as well, isn't it? Absolutely. So um, in, in uh, one of uh, uh, the books of the Promised Messiah, um, uh, um, actually, sorry, the, His Holiness Mirza Tahir Ahmed, the fourth successor of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the fourth successor of the Promised Messiah, he also you know, uh, said in his book that Islam establishes minimum rights in the form of four-point uh, charter by defining the basic needs which a state should um, pursue, food, clothing, water, and shelter. These are the four things which, uh, you know, basically are the basics that, uh, you know, um, that a government should be given. And let's say if there would be a Islamic state and then these things uh, should be given to every single human being and then it's their right to have that of course um so um let's listen to this audio clip which was with dr lisa schuster tell us about that day um before we ask you a few more questions on this topic when when you were evacuated um Personally, the reason why I'm asking this is, I mean, there's one thing to read these things in the news, to read these things on social mm. media. But then, I mean, we're very fortunate that you are with us today. So just, you know, to for, for, for the benefit of our listeners, what was happening? I think, I think it's really important to stress that although the situation was very difficult, I was in a very, very privileged position compared to the people that I was working with Hmm. in the Ministry for Refugees and Repatriation, some of whom, many of whom were unable to leave and are still in Kabul in very difficult circumstances, Hmm. compared to friends and colleagues who didn't have the um, privilege of being taken into Camp Barron 
and able to stay there and sleep in a bed. And instead, my friends spent days and nights outside the airport um, having to cross a disgusting sewer, mm. um, trying to protect their children who had shots fired over their heads and were becoming hysterical with fear. I mean, I, I don't, I'm going to leave it to the imagination of mm. your listeners to think about the kind of basic human needs that you can't fulfill while you're stuck in a crowd of three to 5,000 people outside um, the walls of the airport. No access to food, no access to sanitation, and people literally firing over your head. Mm. But I do want to stress that I'm really aware of just how privileged I was that I didn't have that kind of fear, that I knew that one way or the other, somehow I would get out. Mm. Um, but when I eventually got into the airport, um, I spent the night before we boarded the plane amongst hundreds of Afghan families who were queuing up. And sadly, many of the people the in the first place, British and then French soldiers that I was trying to assist, they didn't have translators. Mm. I spent a lot of the time talking with families and I could, it's very hard to describe the level of terror, just sheer terror as I'm looking at uh, a man and his wife and their children and these foreigners are asking them, can I have your passport? Can I have your date of birth? Um, they're just asking for basic details and the people asking this were not being impolite or unpleasant. But people were utterly bewildered. You know, a few days before they, or even two days, one day before they had been in their home surrounded by their family and suddenly it's dark. They are in a strange place. These foreigners in uniforms are asking them questions and depending on the answers they give, they're thinking, am I going to be able to get to safety? Am I going to be able to bring my, my family to safety? And so what my memory of that period of time was just looking into <clears throat> the terror in people's faces. I'm sorry, I've spoken too long. No, no, no that's, that's absolutely fine. I mean, it's a very vivid imagination and the way you're describing it, um, this level of terror that we can only guess, but we're getting a, a good sense. And thank you for sharing that with us. And if you don't mind, we can just move the conversation on a little bit mm-hmm. more before I think all of our listeners just start shedding lots and lots of tears and just fall apart. I just want to know that Afghanistan, it, it is, we know now, is facing the worst humanitarian crisis. And the UN is doing its best to help and to get the aid to all Afghanistan uh, Afghanistanians who were there. Is it is it getting to them or is it only in kind of like the major cities? And how are people surviving even some people are not surviving that's mm. the reality um I'm, I'm, my fear my strong fear is that by the time now rose comes in the spring we will have seen a huge number of deaths um, as it is there is a huge amount of food insecurity in afghanistan so there are millions of people at the moment who have no idea whether they will have anything to feed their children tomorrow or themselves. There are millions of people in Afghanistan 
at the moment that are feeding their family literally on dry bread and black tea. I mean, when, that, when, yeah. sorry, uh, I'm just when you describe this and we see this devastation and the lack of food, uh, what would you say to the international community? Um, irrespective of the political agenda, but actually just on the humanitarian side, what would you say to them? Or, you know, how can we see this happen before us? Um, as we said in our opening um, statement that Afghanistan is kind of sleepwalking into a disaster and we're watching it happen. I mean, what would you say uh, to the international community? You know, it's, it's really hard and I, I don't have any easy answers. One thing is clear is that whether, irregardless of relationships with the Taliban, the international community does not have enough resources. It, I mean, we've seen this in Yemen. Yemen has been going on for years. Mm-hmm. The situation in Afghanistan has become significantly worse in the last four months. But even before the Taliban, there were large numbers of Afghans who were facing food insecurity. There were hundreds of thousands of people who were internally displaced and didn't have a secure home. There was an extraordinarily high level of unemployment. So even before the Taliban came to power, the international community did not have enough resources. I mean, by that, I mean IOM, World Food Program, etc. For me, the big shame is we are wealthy countries. <laughs> At least I'm here in France. I work in the UK. Europe is the wealthiest region in the world. There is no reason that we cannot at least provide enough resources so that mm. children and, and adults are not dying. So that is a major shame on the rich countries of the world. In terms of even if they had the resources, what should they do? I find it extraordinary that the Taliban are preoccupied with deciding whether or not women should be able to use a hammam, hmm. whether or not mannequins, shop dummies should have heads. The, the video footage that is coming out of musical instruments, Afghan musical instruments, not violin, well, yes, violins and guitars, but also rabab, dumbara, um, tabla, Mm. are being smashed up and destroyed. And I'm sorry, but I want to scream at these people. People are dying of hunger, and you are preoccupied with these kind of things. This is not Islam. Not the Islam that I know only secondhand from friends. But this seems to me to be utterly insane. There is something that the international community could do in theory in terms of putting pressure on the Taliban and saying, look, we will give you, we will feed the people if you allow everybody to have access to these resources. If you don't deny access to certain groups, I'm thinking here of ethnic minorities, if you agree to allow girls to go to school, etc., you there must be some way to, to mm. put pressure on. But I must admit, I don't understand what the point of getting power in a country is if it is not to ensure the basic necessities 
mm. of the people over yeah. whom you have yeah. power. So this um, was an interview we had with one of our guest callers, Dr. Lisa Schuster, and um, truly tragic, obviously, the, the whole situation um, in, in, in uh, um, Afghanistan. Um, another topic that we discussed in the month of January here at the Drive Time Show at Voice of Islam Radio was in regards to um, media. Um, and especially the question we asked was, who do we blame for, or can we blame media for Islamophobia? Um, Islamophobia, obviously, which is defined as sort of the, the fear, the hostility, um, prejudice that is directed at, uh, at Islam, which was um, there even before 9-11, but especially since 9-11, um, has had a rapid increase. The fifth caliph of the MDM Muslim community, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, may Allah strengthen his hands, has said, There is no need to fear Islam, as Islam is not a religion of extremism, or one that permits suicide attacks or uh, indiscriminate violence. There is no need for Islamophobia because Islam's true teachings are of peace, tolerance, and mutual respect. Islam's teachings are of upholding human values and protecting the honor, dignity, and freedoms of all people. So that really um, summarizes what um, Islam is about and how Islam should be seen in this world and how Islam should be portrayed. But obviously, um, what the media is, is, is doing these days is having a, a very heavy and sort of negative influence um, on, on the masses. Um, which uh, have obviously increased um, um, many folds in, in, in the past few decades. Initially, the news and media channels were limited to the Telegraph. Then new um, technological inventions gained access to a variety of ways to television websites and now obviously all these mobile applications that we have on our phones these days. The Holy Quran teaches us, O you who believe, be steadfast in the cause of Allah, bearing witness in equity, and let not a people's enmity incite you to act otherwise than with justice. Be always just, that is nearer to righteousness, and fear Allah, surely Allah is aware of what you do. So that was um, the topic that we discussed that day. And obviously, um, as always, we had our guest callers that were kind enough to join us. We spoke with uh, Madalena K in this regard. And let's see what she had to say. But we're talking about uh, media and Islamophobia. And is it really that, um, I suppose, fanning the flames of uh, Islamophobia? Now, you know, the Media Diversity Institute, uh, of which you're an activist for, you know, it's a very interesting name. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about the organization and its purpose? Um, so the, the Media Diversity Institute is um, an NGO and uh, it works internationally. So um, we have offices in the UK, but also in the Western Balkans and Brussels. Um, and we have projects all over the world, including in China and Sri Lanka. And basically the aim of the organization is to encourage accurate and nuanced reporting on race, religion, ethnicity, class, disability, gender, sexual identity um, uh, in the media landscapes. And that's both traditional media, broadcast media, print media, but also online on social media. Um, and we also do trainings for journalists and uh, for, for youth groups. Um, and uh, we have an MA course at the University of Westminster. 
um, the projects um, uh, range from um, inclusive reporting on um, uh, on uh, religious um, um, entities uh, to um, uh, including our Get the Trolls Out uh, project, which is about uh, combating um, um, anti-religious hate speech. Mm. Madeline, I mean, you, you have mentioned one of your projects, Get the Trolls Out. Can you tell our listeners um, a bit more about what this project is about? Um, so it's it's focused on combating anti-religious hate speech, discrimination, intolerance, um, and also conspiracy theories that are occurring in the media and online. Um, and we have six partners spread um, across Europe, um, in Belgium, France, Germany, Hungary, Greece, and Poland. And the main premise of the project is to monitor the media, for instance, of hate speech so that we can uh, provide debunks um, um, uh, through articles, through videos, um, and we do social media posts and campaigns uh, to tackle um, these anti-religious um, uh, uh, hateful narratives. But we also want to promote positive counter-narratives, so where there's like good news articles, we want to give them promotion, we want to give, uh, we, I do feature posts for activists from um, uh, from campaigns that are trying to, um, you know, uh, promote um, more inclusive narratives about um, ethnic and religious minorities. Hmm. So, you know, when, uh, Madeleine, when the Finsbury Mosque attack happened, you know, we saw headlines such as Jobless Lone Wolf held over attack on mosque. Um, and whilst in contrast, when a perpetrator who is of uh, you know, uh, Islam or, or is a Muslim, we see headlines such as jihadist killers uh, on our streets. Now, do you think the religious identity is highlighted more uh, with full intention when the perpetrator is Muslim? I mean, we, we you know, myself and Tahir pointed this out at the top of the show. You know, why is that in media? Um, it's it's definitely um, uh, um, an issue, and it's it's because the press uh, want to sensationalise news headlines uh, in order to have clicks on social media and to sell copies. And um, the easiest way that they can do that is through hateful narratives. Um, so uh, particularly the tabloid um, press in the UK, because it's currently allowed under IPSO guidelines to. Um, publish uh, hate speech and, and misinformation that's targeting groups, um, um, they can get away with things like this. Um, and we do see, um, you know, the majority of um, extremist uh, uh, um, and terrorist attacks are actually from the far right, uh, not from, um, uh, mm -hmm. from um, fun Islamist uh, fundamentalists. Yet when we see reporting on that, they're often portrayed as... Uh, you know, um, uh, um, uh, young, uh, you know, their age and their uh, young ages are often hi highlighted to create empathy, and um, they talk about how they've had like a bad, abnormal childhood and they're vulnerable, etc. And um, uh, not just in the media reporting, but we see uh, sometimes, uh, you know, far-right terrorists getting off with lesser sentences. Mm -hmm. um, um, and the reason why. Um, you know, um, uh, publications like the Daily Mail or the Sun mm -hmm. um, uh, take advantage of um, 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 incidents where they can um, highlight um, uh, the um, perpetrator's um, religion is is basically just because hate sells, because hate spreads, mm. and it's it's cultivating a you know um, yeah, love and harmony aren't kind of like top uh, news articles, are they? Really, they don't sell newspapers, they don't sell newsprint, unfortunately. 
So, you know, how can a reader uh, or an audience actually, you know, are there any pointers to differentiate between, you know, what is genuine news and what is sensationalism? Well, this is really cool. You know, a lot of our work that we do at the Media Diversity Institute is um, about media literacy and, um, you know, promoting education and critical thinking because actually um, often articles are written in a way um, to grab attention and draw people in, but also to manipulate, uh, uh, um, you know, understanding through really clever linguistic techniques such as framing and coded language that and stereotypes um, and tropes that can be really hard to pick up if you're not educated to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say for a reader, in order to differentiate, you you basically, is it a trustworthy news source? You know, mm-hmm. places like Liverpool have, have boycotted the sun because, because you know, everybody knows that it sells hate. Mm-hmm. But you know, the news sources, are they, are they legitimate? Are they trustworthy? And are there arguments and statements that they're making backed up by fact and evidence from credible sources or are they making broad generalizations and stereotypes without any kind of evidence um so this was um an interview um and we had a few questions for madalina k that uh, explained to us this, this this whole um phenomena of media and how they can portray um a a certain stance and uh, as she was explaining towards the end that it is important for us to really do our own re- research and try find out um, whether what is being said is also backed up um, through so substantial evidence or, or is it just mere claims or are these just headlines? Um, many uh, commentators would also agree that the mainstream media, especially right-wing outlets, is playing a significant role in the spread of Islamophobia. So, for instance, Gary Jones, uh, <clears throat> who became... Um, the editor of the Daily Express in March 2018 even told MPs that previous headlines in the paper have helped to create an Islamophobic sentiment. And, uh, I mean, if if we look around ourselves on, on a daily basis, we, we do come across many of these headlines that can create a certain sort of stigma um, in our minds and that can lead us to a certain way of thinking. How many of us do actually stop there and ask ourselves whether this is something that we want to believe or not or whether this is something that is actually happening in the world today? So this kind of biased media coverage can have, uh, have, have a very negative effect on people as it can make a general public fearful or, or, or even hostile towards uh, ordinary Muslims. According to the Netflix documentary The Social Dilemma, false information spreads six times faster than the the truth. The media contributes to the problem of uh, othering a xenophobia by propagating and reinforcing negative stereotypes um, of Muslims. I mean, the the example is of terrorists, criminals, violent, um, or even barbaric. And and obviously this ends up causing um, divisiveness, um, tension and conflict when it doesn't uh, really need to exist. So Islamophobia can make ordinary, peaceful and law-abiding people feel unwelcomed and isolated in a place that is meant to be their home. There is no doubt that um, more recently the media has been under intense scrutiny for inciting Islamophobia 
and really creating stereotypes about Muslims and Islam. However, the manifestation of Islamophobia in media of various forms has become increasingly sophisticated, hence difficult to detect. Research also suggests that the main source of information regarding Islam is the media. So obviously, whatever they are portraying of Islam is something um, that people are going to listen to. One thing uh, the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya community, Hazrat Masoor Ahmed, said um, is that there is no doubt that the media plays a huge role in influencing public opinion. And so the media should use this power responsibly as a force for good and as a force for peace. It should show the world that what true Islam represents rather than focusing on the merciless acts of the tiny minority. And that really is um, what everyone should be following as, um, as, a very, uh, as a way forward. We did speak um, with uh, um, Todd Green, one of our guest callers, a uh, little more about this topic. So let's uh, hear what he had to say about this. Yeah, how can we respond to people who think that uh, Islamophobia does not exist and it is only a, a tool to restrict freedom of speech? You know, I find that argument to really be an effort, in many cases at least, to delegitimize the bigotry and discrimination that mm-hmm. Muslim populations face in Western nations like the UK, like here in the United States. And, and they do so by accusing people who speak out against Islamophobia of trying to undermine freedom of speech. It's mm-hmm. an attempt to silence them. Uh, erasing Islamophobia enables some people in positions of power uh, to pursue domestic and foreign policies also that benefit them politically and in some cases financially. In fact, there's an entire industry of Islamophobia on both sides of the Atlantic that seeks to do this, and it's a very lucrative one. Uh, for example, here in the United States, one study from several years ago found that uh, uh, there's like $1.5 billion uh, funneled through wow. about 30 anti-Muslim organizations based here in the United States. Many of these organizations have connections in the U.K. and in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, uh, that's something to really keep in mind when you hear this argument of pushing back on calling attention to Islamophobia because it undermines freedom of speech. Mm. So you said 1.5 billion. I mean, how is that monetized then? Well, um, in the United States, uh, the way the laws work, it's very tricky. A lot of this is, is basically pri- private donors funneling their, their donations through uh, what we call donor organizations where they, their identity can oftentimes be kept anonymous. Mm-hmm. So it can be difficult and tricky sometimes to track down who's actually giving the money. We, we know in some cases who it is, but in other cases, we mostly know where it's being funneled uh, to, like you know, organizations or or entities like Jihad Watch with Robert Spencer or the American Freedom Defense Initiative with Pamela Geller, um, uh, organizations like this. Um, but but the, um, the contributions are oftentimes individual donors, and some of the studies suggest that these are donors who have a vested interest in particular U.S. policies when it comes to, say, Israel and Palestine. Hmm. Okay, so ultimately it's always a, a case of like trying to f- follow the trail of money and it will lead you no. <laughs> back to somewhere where you might you might not think it, it, which it should do. So, you know, do you think uh, the bias that we sometimes see in reporting is due to a lack of knowledge or is it actually intentional? You know, I think much, not all, but much of the bias in at least mainstream media I don't think is, is overtly intentional. Mm-hmm. Um but it, it, that doesn't make it less dangerous, right? Uh, for example, a study uh, by an organization uh, uh, back in 2015, I think, or 2016, found that the New York Times uh, and, uh, portrayed Islam more negatively 
over a period of years than cocaine or cancer. Wow. Right? Now, that's remarkable I mean, on a variety of fronts, not least <laughs> of which is how cocaine gets better news coverage in the slum. Or <laughs> but, a, I mean, I suppose, I suppose, Todd, if you actually, uh, if there were a study to, to link the, the deaths uh, attributed to cocaine and cancer, um, my guess would be there are more deaths linked to those two things than, you know, uh, Islamophobia. Oh yeah, well it's it's um it, it it it's a sensationalist way of covering these stories. Uh-huh. You, you know, but when I look at the New York Times, which is a very well respected yeah. newspaper in the United States, probably considered to be the paper of record here in the U.S. Um, but but do I, do I think this is an orchestrated effort by the editors and journalists on staff at the New York Times? No, I don't think so. I think many journalists have inherited a lot of anti-Muslim Orientalist stereotypes that have been around not only for decades, but in some cases for centuries. And these stereotypes have become so deeply embedded in public discourse about Islam that many journalists are simply not aware that they harbor these uh, prejudices. Mm. That being said, I do think we also need to pay attention to the intentional efforts of some media outlets um, where this happens. The Spectator in the UK, to me, Mm. is the most obvious example, a recent report by the Center for Media Monitoring in the UK found that The Spectator was one of the more egregious and consistent offenders when it came to Islamophobic news coverage, and I think that is intentional. I think that's how they sell papers. In the United States, the, the, the analog would be something like Fox News. Um, mm. Again, a history of very consciously and deliberately casting Islam and Muslims as violent, as oppressive, as anti-American. So there is a business there in some media outlets as well in terms of overtly covering Islam in this way, but not in all cases. And mm-hmm. um, Todd, I mean, do you think that the media sees Muslim countries such as Saudi Arabia as a representation of Islam? I mean, if, even states like Pakistan as well, who call themselves a, a fully Muslim country with Muslim law, uh, as as Saudi Arabia as well. I mean, that I mean, and and just on to addition with that, I mean, it means that whenever these countries do something controversial it automatically equates to Islam promoting such controversial things. I mean, there were stories about Saudi Arabia recently um, having alcohol factories, and mm-hmm. alcohol in Islam is forbidden. Forbidden. Um, and then, of course, I mean, such other things which are controversial, then it, it just, it's like it's promoting it, in a way. No, I, I agree. I, I think, uh, and again, in media coverage, it's very easy to take a country like Saudi Arabia and see it as a sort of a symbolic stand-in for one point, what, six or seven billion Muslims worldwide, right? And I think the reason that happens in part, if again, for me, as someone who studies Islamophobia, is that because many of us believe that Islamophobia is fundamentally a form of racism, Mm-hmm. And as such, it's been commonplace in Western media to assume that Muslims are a monolith. And when one Muslim entity or government of a Muslim-majority nation does something that's bad or egregious, then all Muslims are presumed to be guilty or they're all linked to this. So if Saudi Arabia is guilty of human rights abuses and violations, then this must be something that's endemic to Islam and characteristic of the beliefs of all Muslims. Never mind that Muslims themselves are often the most ardent, fierce critics of countries like Saudi Arabia, but that gets glossed over in a lot of media coverage. And so, yes, this is a, it is a real problem, but I think it also speaks to the very nature of Islamophobia as racializing Muslims globally to the point that uh, if one Muslim-majority country does something wrong in terms of its government or one guy named Osama bin Laden does mm-hmm. horrific things, then all Muslims are somehow implicated. All Muslims are presumed guilty. Mm. I mean, I'm just uh, kind of equating that fact with 
you know, obviously in the in the US, you just had the anniversary of January the sixth, and uh, President Biden's, although not taking uh, the previous president's name. Uh, but saying that you know he incited riots. I mean, and when we saw those capital riots, uh, that was, and I mean, you know, for terms like you know an assault on U.S. democracy, I think that's that's actually quite a light headline, really, um, because it was. I mean, when we saw that, or I, I know for a fact personally, when I saw that on TV, I was gobsmacked. Uh, I didn't have any words because I'm seeing. Um, you know, supposedly patriots uh, attacking Capitol Hill, you know, the seat of your democracy. And whilst the, that attack was uh, unf- you know, unfolding, you actually had senators, you know, hiding and fearing for their lives. So, you know, and then, you know, on, on the flip side of that, we don't see that, oh, OK, these assaults are um, perpetrated by Christian patriots. No, we don't. I think our radar in the United States and in maybe many Western countries is simply not turned on when it comes to violence and horrific violence perpetrated by white and white Christian Americans or mm-hmm. Christian Canadians or Europeans, right? Uh, in fact, there's, a, of course, this is a very long history of this. From a, from, a, from a historical perspective, if you study the history of, uh, of the intersections between religion and violence in the West, uh, a good chunk of that history involves people who are white and people who have a Christian background. Mm. Um, and you don't have to go back even as far as the Crusades or the Inquisition. I, you know, we're talking about the transatlantic slave trade and mm-hmm. Jim Crow and lynchings here in the United States. We're talking about the uh, you know, uh, atomic annihilation. We're talking about mm-hmm. uh, torture and the war on terror, the Vietnam War, uh, all the way into uh, you know, here in the 21st century. And so this seems to many in the media, like some sort of anomaly of what happened on January 6, 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from a certain perspective, white and white Christian Americans ha- have always uh, had some recourse to violence, and t- or, or at least had elements of that throughout this history, and have used that violence to try to exclude people uh, who see the political system differently than they do. Uh, and that's, I mean, if, if you think of slavery as a violent institution, which we should, um, that was also an attempt to keep certain people in the United States and in the Americas uh, out of the system, to exclude them from the system. And so that was what was happening again on January 6th. It wasn't the first time in American history. It's just that we're not sort of trained or tuned in oftentimes in the media to, to notice this sort of stuff. But we notice it if, if, if the perpetrators would have had a Muslim background. Perpetrators, oh, yeah. if January 6th had a Muslim background, mm-hmm. um, that would have been a, a, a closed case in terms of arrest, convictions. Uh, every politician you can think of would be condemning this, but uh, mm-hmm. it, it's uh, not so easy when, it, when it's people basically who look like me and who have my <laughs> yeah. racial and religious background. Yeah. Mm. And and I mean, until that, I mean, it, it comes down not only just, I mean, there's that, that the aspect of, of um, that, there's, there's an aspect of racism there as well, but essentially it's that lack of maybe equality in in the sense of uh, how, in the sense of how if it's people of different races or different colors can be uh, or or someone in the similar color similar race uh, can do what he he pleases in a way uh, and get away with it but if someone in is of a, a different um, i mean it's we're speaking about white supremacy white privilege it's on the sa- it's on the same pattern of a, a lack of equality a lack of basic understanding of human rights 
Absolutely. I think uh, in the United States, for example, I think there has basically historically been one system of justice for white Americans Mm -hmm. and one system of justice for everyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, uh, and and if if perpetrators are African-American, if they're Muslim, um, communities of color, you know, they're treated a different way. The media covers it in a different way. It's, It's deemed more as this existential threat. And when the perpetrators are white, uh, the coverage may not even be there at all. There's a lot of terrorist attacks in the United States in the past decade that have been perpetrated by white extremists, the vast majority of them, in fact. But they don't get nearly the amount of media coverage as a a terrorist attack that would be uh, perpetrated by someone with a Muslim background. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the way the media sort of tries these these events in public uh, arena, if you will, leans heavily towards uh, linking, you know, racial and religious minority populations with violence. And white people sort of get off the hook. Or if, if there is violence by people, who, again, who look like me, it's not seen as something endemic to whiteness or white Christianity. It's mm-hmm. an anomaly. But when Muslims do it, it must have something to do with their culture or their religion. Mm-hmm. And that, too, is something we have to interrogate in media coverage. Yeah, hence, lone wolf. I always hear lone wolf, yes. or you always see lone wolf. There's no such thing as a lone wolf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but, yeah, no, they hunt in packs. <laughs> always. Always. Always, always a shaped by other people yes. yeah. yeah just just lastly to i mean about your book uh, presumed guilty um why shouldn't we ask muslims to condemn terrorism why shouldn't we ask muslims well i think there are three reasons uh, that we sh- uh, must be careful the, the we being those of us in the non-muslim majority populations of europe and the united states why mm-hmm. this is a problematic question to ask you know you know uh particularly in the aftermath of terrorist attacks, when Muslim leaders are pointing to and saying, you need to call this out, you need to condemn this. Doing so does a, has a few problems. First, it asks, asking this question assumes that Islam is the cause of terrorism, um, you know, and therefore Muslims must sort of defend Islam. Yet many academic studies of terrorism would, would point to the uh, similar conclusion that uh, those who have a Muslim background who participate in terrorist attacks often know very little about Islam. They're often quite ignorant of it and not often particularly observant in their practice. Uh, it's, it's usually political and psychological factors that are the, drama, the, the dominant factors, drivers, if you will, of, uh, of terrorism. So that's the, uh, one reason. A second reason is um, asking Muslims to condemn terrorism assumes that Muslims don't condemn terrorism. And so there's, you know, there's this kind of righteous demand for Muslims to speak out more when, in fact, Muslims speak out all the time. And you, we don't have time today for me to go over all the condemnations of terrorism yeah. that Muslims yeah. You know, organizations and leaders have issued, uh, and there are people who keep track of this stuff. But, um, but uh, again, um, it, it's not covered oftentimes in the media, and, and people still make these assumptions that this is not happening. Mm. And, and that itself is, um, is a problem. Um, it also has a double, uh, sort of a, a you know, a, 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 a sense of um, Muslims are asked to do something that I wouldn't be asked to do, a double standard, right? So, so again, go back to the, the January 6th insurrection. I've been interviewed a number of times since then. Not one person, not one journalist has asked me to condemn it. They, they just assume I do, right? Mm-hmm. They just assume, oh, well, you know, not all white Christian people act the same, so we don't have to ask this guy if, if he has any sympathies with the people in the insurrection. I wasn't asked to, to condemn the insurrection. I wasn't asked to condemn Anders Breivik after he murdered 77 people in Norway. Um, I um, wasn't asked to condemn Britain Tarrant after the New Zealand uh, massacre uh, in, in 2019. Um, you know, I'm given the benefit of the doubt, and Muslims are not, and that's something we have to pay attention to. And, and quickly, the last reason why I think it's 
troublesome to ask Muslims to condemn terrorism because I think it distracts white and white Christian Americans and Europeans from coming to terms with their own violent past and their ongoing complicity in a violent world order. You know, again, we can talk about the long history of this from the Crusades and the Inquisition, witch trials, but we're also talking about genocide of indigenous peoples in the Americas, the slave trade, lynchings, Jim Crow, atomic annihilation, European colonization, the Vietnam War, the war on terror. There is just a vast record of violence oftentimes perpetrated by white and white Christians in the West. And as long as we fixate on Muslims and demand that they condemn violence, the rest of us don't have to come to terms with this history. And that's why I think we need to shift the conversation and to talk more about things like the insurrection and what, how that is a, a part of and a product of a longer history. You were just listening to a uh, interview done with Todd Green, uh, who spoke about Islamophobia and the issues in regards to that. Um, we also discussed in the month of January about young people. Why do they rebel against older, uh, older generation? What are the issues that they are going through? In the Holy Quran, we see that God Almighty has said that verily you have in the Prophet of Allah an excellent model, as in um, the perfect model, a perfect person to follow is the Prophet, and and for us it is Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Teenage is one of the most vulnerable periods in our lives, an awful lot of pressure pounding on the door of our lives while we are too weak to deal with it correctly. Pressure to do well in studies, to please your peers, to find your identity, the need for independence leading to rebellious attitude and all the while above all the need to build confidence. Teenagers face real problems on a daily basis during most awkward growth stages of their lives. And these stages is usually between the ages of 13 and 19. During this time, teens are exposed to some overwhelming external and internal struggles. For example, uh, teens go through um, and are ex- expected to cope with hormonal changes, social and parental forces, work and school pressures, as well as encountering uh, many conditions and problems. Teenagers are also um, exposed to gambling, and we have seen an increase in the number of teens who indulge in gambling as well. However, what the teens do not realize is that the risks that come alongside this problem Some cases that have come in the news also show us that the gambling not only costs money, but can cost lives too. Uh, uh, Apologies, cost, um, you know, lives as well. Islam has strictly forbidden any habit of addiction, such as alcohol, drugs and gambling. Islam doesn't, you know, allow us to do a little bit of alcohol or a little bit of drugs or a little bit of gambling. It prohibits us. It stops us from doing it at all. In the Holy Quran, uh, we see that God Almighty has, says, um, has said that, O ye who believe, wine and the game of hazard and idols and divining errors are only an abomination of Satan's handiwork. So shun each one of them that you may prosper. Now, the youths particularly those who are in their early teens who drink, put themselves at risk for many problems. It is an imperative that parents, schools, media, etc. educate that young children about the dangers of drugs and alcohol. 
and how drugs affect their bodies. If they are taught properly, then they will be able to make an educate uh, and uh, uh, will be educated, and they will uh, make the right choices. Another problem with teens we have is bullying, and bullying is one of the worst teenage problems, and it affects millions of youth. Bullying causes fear in the minds of kids and makes us nervous going to school each day. The adults do not always witness the bullying in their lives. Two of the prime reasons of why teens are bullied are their apparent uh, appearance and social status. So, a lot of topics we discussed, of course, and we had a guest speaker who spoke on these topics, and um, we spoke with Hannah O'Brien. Let's listen to what he has to say. We are speaking about uh, problems that teenagers face. Um, right now, we're, we're going to be speaking about uh, mental health issues, of course. But we have been speaking about various problems throughout the course of the show. Um, the first question that we wanted to ask you was, of course, today, children and adults alike, we are dealing with a lot of stress and anxiety. Why do you think that is? I think that's a wonderful question. And I think it has so many answers. Um, but just to address it briefly, I think that... Social media is a really big factor for a lot of teens right now. I think that um, the thief of comparison is very real, and I think how we portray ourselves on social media can be quite different than how we really are in real life. And so that can create some unattainable expectations and standards that can definitely contribute to anxiety, Um, as well as we see poor sleep habits contribute, poor health. Um, If they come from a home of trauma and abuse, that's definitely a big factor. Um, Relationships can be um, a a huge stressor. Also, we've seen uh, lowered stigma in the past couple of years. And um, even in the most recent 20 years, I think we've seen lowered stigma around mental health. And it's made it more accessible to talk about, which I think is definitely a reason why we see increased anxiety. Maybe not necessarily it's increased, but our awareness of it has increased. Mm -hmm. Um, And also um, high unemployment rates, um, poverty rates also contribute to anxiety, underreporting in the past. And then also just the fact that more people are open today about their mental health um, than they have been previously. And as well as um, that we're in a global pandemic, I think that greatly contributes as well. Very interesting. I mean, uh, I think it has covered also the second question that we wanted to ask, but something that, that just popped up in my mind that I wanted to ask you, and that is, you know, you've said that a lot of people are now very open um, with their mental health and uh, anxiety and stuff. Um, uh, do you think that's that that's a good thing? Of course, I mean, from, from my perspective, I think I think it's good. It's you know, it it brings for, forward conversations and stuff. But do you also think on the other side there is less tolerance from the person himself in dealing with uh, you know some of the problems that they have? Um, because you know, you you probably heard from the elder generation that. Oh, yeah, you're absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with you and this and that. Do you think there's the other side of that picture as well? Um, you know, actually installing, com- uh, you know, confidence in people and saying that you can also deal with these things, not in a negative way, but in a, in a, in a positive way. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's extremely important to encourage people to talk about their mental health, no matter what age they might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, I encourage anybody who's listening to not, if somebody comes to you with anxiety, um, 
try to listen to them, try yeah. to be open um, and try if you have any opinions about those things, maybe set them aside and really just come from a listening point first, because that's mm-hmm. how we learn. That's how we grow as individuals, as we listen to others and really try and hear what they have to say. So I know that some of the older generation might be less open to that's just deeper in their generation is to, to be strong and to really mm-hmm. try um, to to not talk about these things because maybe if you don't talk about them, they're not happening. But we know that that's not the case anymore. Mm-hmm. We know better now. Absolutely. I mean, how can we help young people? I mean, you've touched upon this before. Actually recognize, you know, symptoms of anxiety and stress. Absolutely. In <clears throat> children, it looks a little bit different than it does um, in and even adults, and for each person, it's a little bit different, but mm-hmm. so there are some things that are mostly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, for for young kids and teens, we want to look for any recurring fears and worries that might be a part of their everyday life. We want to look for um, changes in behavior, um, deep mood swings involving irritability, sadness, nervousness, um, and emotions like that. Um, we're looking for things like them avoiding activities, school, any social interactions. Um, We might see grades dropping. Um, We might see them wanting to avoid school altogether. Um, Mm -hmm. Any trouble sleeping that they might have or concentrating. Or in older teens, we might see substance abuse or risky behaviors. Mm -hmm. Um, It could be chronic physical complaints like fatigue, headaches, or stomach aches. Like for myself personally, it started for me when I was about three years old, Mm -hmm. and it manifested in stomach (laughs) aches. And so my parents took me to doctor after doctor. They're like, we can't figure out what's wrong. And um, it was actually a physicalization of anxiety. So if you've ruled out everything else, you might look into anxiety. Very interesting. And uh, what is your approach, you know, when, uh, you know, it, I, in, in, in helping young people deal with and tackle anxiety? Absolutely. I think there's a lot of great ways that we can do that. And there's a lot of free resources available to us on um, Pinterest, on YouTube. Um, for parents specifically, I've seen some amazing coping skills. Um, I would look up coping skills um, for children, coping skills for children that have anxiety, um, and really use some of the, look for breathing techniques and grounding techniques because those ones are based in science and usually work the most universally across most children. Mm -hmm. Um, I would also say try to keep positive in the house, keep a positive mindset. If you can practice positive affirmations with your children, just saying, having them look at themselves in the mirror with you saying, I am strong, I am going to have a good day today, I am kind, things like that really cultivate a positive mindset and bring about a sense of strong self-confidence in children. Um, another thing that we can do is if a child is suffering, tell a trusted adult, be a trusted adult for a mm. child, um, check in with children, ask them how they're feeling. Some children might tell you they're anxious and other children might not. Um, another thing that we can do for children are um, fidget toys are really great, especially in school. Um, they help them put that nervous energy into somewhere. Also, stress relief uh, games and apps are really helpful to redirect that anxious energy into something positive. Um, And when we actually play games, we turn on a different part of our brain that um, isn't activated while we have anxiety. And so it it literally, the brain can't focus on the two different parts at once, and so it has to jump to the part where we're playing the game. Mm. So it kind of helps them feel a lot less anxious. 
Um, also, you can go the traditional route, which would be cognitive behavioral therapy or medication. Um, but what's really important across the board is routine for children, regular sleep, exercise, diet, um, and meditation can be extremely helpful as well. Um, just really talking to your children, identifying any stressors and helping them reduce it is extremely important. Very good. Very, Very good. I mean, so so many different ways uh, in which we can get uh, children, and not just children. Obviously, it's for it can work for adults, of course, as well. Um, to 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 get them to relieve uh, that that stress, that anxiety, and and to focus their energy on something um, which will help them. Like like for instance, like you, Hannah, what you mentioned about uh, playing games and stuff as well, where a different part of your of your brain is activated at that time, um, which ensures uh, that you that that you aren't uh, that you aren't. Uh, anxious at that time or maybe going through uh, stress as well um, just one last question for you uh, do you, and, and we've, we've spoken about this with our with our other guests in 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 in, in different um, ways um, but when it comes to uh, anxiety and and the impact that uh, that uh, that that our conversations have uh, between parents and between children the relationship that we have um, the impact uh, it would have on anxiety if we have a good relationship with one another do you think this has any effect um, uh, uh, if any yes absolutely I think that that is a great question um, and I think that it does have to do with it greatly I think for myself I was lucky enough that it wasn't a factor um, my parents Dave and Trisha O'Brien were amazing parents to me and um, they were incredible but some people don't have that same privilege and they mm. come from a home of divorce or abuse or trauma or fighting things like that and um, they do have anxiety as children and that what we model for our children greatly affects how they feel. And so um, divorce is something that can happen without anxiety. It's, it's about the way that we go about it, the way that we communicate with our children, the way that we treat them. Um, and so I do think that our relationship with our children is extremely important. I do think it has a big <clears throat> impact. And I think what we can do as parents to make sure that we're helping our children with their mental health is just check in with them, ask them questions, talk to them, how is their day, make sure you know what's going on in their life and if they do have any sort of stressors that you're communicating with them and working with them to work through it because we all need help at the end of the day yeah yeah no no most certainly most certainly um and just uh, before we uh let you go the question that we're asking on our instagram story um to our listeners out there is why do children rebel against their parents um wh what are your thoughts on that why do children rebel against their parents i think um i think it's the fact that maybe they don't have enough freedom on their own or they're trying to figure out who they are still and mm -hmm. they think that that comes with being rebellious and um, maybe figuring out who they are. Um, I think that's a really great question. I think there could be a lot of different answers, but I of think course, for me yeah. that would be mine. I think if I rebelled in my childhood, it was because I was trying to create my own freedom or find my own freedom. So I would encourage any parents that are going through that to try and figure out what freedom their child is trying to achieve and maybe come to a good compromise that works for the both of you. Communication is absolutely key, especially in young rebellious teens. So this was um, a bit of a recap we had from the month of January here at the Drive Time Show at West of Islam Radio. We, we spoke about New Year, about um, Afghanistan, about our children, about media, etc., etc. The influence we are taking from the media. Um, thank you very much for listening to us. Keep listening to the Voice of Islam, the Drive Time Show, and um, let's now move on to the news.